Amen. Thank you for that song, Brian. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. We're going to look this morning at a broken world needs a prepared and praying church. Do you all agree with me this morning, church, that the world's broken? It's a, it's a broken world. You turn on the news, you open up the paper, you read the articles, and you see a world in need. And uh, a world in need, uh, we know what the solution is. We, we have the solution in Christ. And we know that uh, a world that is in need needs a church that is prepared, a church that is praying, and a church that we'll dive into today is participating. And we'll look at some of those things today. Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3 is where we'll uh, open our text this morning. And if you uh, find your place in your Bible there in Nehemiah 1, I invite you to stand with me this morning to honor God's Word. This morning we'll read the first three verses out of Nehemiah 1, and then we'll uh, dive into some thoughts. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, that it came to pass in the month uh, Kislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hananiah, the, one of my uh, brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Father, we love you. God, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray this morning that, Lord, my words would be yours, that you would allow me to get out of the way, and Lord, your spirit would just speak through me, and God, to speak to the hearts of those who are here. I pray that today we would set aside all the cares of this world uh, for this, uh, this next period of time. Lord, the things that are on our to-do list this week, the things we have to do today, maybe the things that happened yesterday, let us set those aside for just a moment. And just focus in on what you would have for us today. Focus in on your word and the truths from it. Lord, I pray that each person in this room would have an open mind and an open heart to what you would have for us today. And God, we know as we see a world around us that is in need, a world that is broken and needs a church that is prepared and is praying and is is seeking to honor you. The church needs to be at its best when the world's at its worst. And Lord, help us to to be busy about doing what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that you be with this service. Again, I pray if there's one that doesn't know Christ as a Savior. Lord, I pray that today they would make that decision. Father, we completely surrender this service into your hands. May your perfect will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated uh, this morning. So as we look ahead, we begin to think about uh, the next coming year and the future of First Baptist Church and what, what is to come. We must first come to a realization this morning. There's something we need to understand first. There's something I need to understand first. And we need to understand that uh, the church, the people... The decisions that are yet to be made, the, the future of the church, are all the working of God himself and not of man. We understand that it is God who gives the increase. This is God's church. It's his church. He builds the church. And so as a church, we need to be busy about doing what he's asked and called us to do. But we know that he is the one who gives the increase. The church is not built with man's hands. We know we labor. Amen. We know we work. We know we serve. But it's God who does the work. He saves souls. He changes lives. He reaches down and saves people. He is the one who gives the increase. So we look around us today, and I think we all would agree that our world is in trouble. We watch the news, and we see things that happen in our world today, and some of us just shake our heads. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about just the difference in a period of time from when I was a child to today. The things that we did as I, when I was a kid, we wouldn't think of letting our kids do today. We wouldn't let them go without keeping an eye on them because of the way in which our society is today. Our world is broken. And the question that remains for you and I, what can we do? What can we do? Can we make a difference at all? Is it a helpless situation? Can things change? 
Can the revivals we hear of old times happen today? Can a revival that we hear in the, the olden days, can that still take place in 2020? Is that still a possibility? Can a church today get completely on fire to seek after God and to reach people and to make Him known and do as Acts 17, 6 says, turn the world upside down? Is that still possible in 2020? Is that something that can happen? Can a church do these things? In the midst of this broken generation, are these things even possible? And I don't know about you, but I'm just crazy enough to believe that God can still do that. I'm crazy enough to believe that God can still save souls. God can still revive people. He can still do a tremendous work. He can build a church. I don't think God is at all taken back by the things of society. I believe he's in complete control. I believe he's still faithful. He's still true. And so we are faced today with the reality of a situation of how to respond. And as we look at a few things this morning, I've heard a few quotes that say this. It says, worse than being lost is being lost and no one is looking for you. That's a horrible situation to be in. Amen. Worse than being lost is being lost and no one's looking for you. I've also heard it said the worst sin towards our fellow man is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. This is the very essence of inhumanity, to be indifferent to our society today. I'm reminded as I was studying through this of the the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, where we know that that the the, the, uh, person there was, was injured and left on the roadside for dead. We know the priest came by and passed by and paid no attention. We see the Samaritan is the one who stopped and invested in that person physically, financially, and took care of that individual. And the question for you and I is, as a church, we see a world in need. Are we willing to invest? Are we willing to step out and, and get involved and get our hands dirty in this broken world? Nehemiah was the kind of person who cared. We're going to dive through Nehemiah chapter 1 today, and we'll see that his people, Jerusalem, was in a severe situation. It says the walls were broken down. It says the gates thereof were burned with fire. It says they were under reproach. They were in ruins, so to speak. And Nehemiah, 900 miles away, was concerned. And he was concerned enough to be moved to action. He cared about the traditions of the past and the needs of the present. He cared about the hopes of the future. He cared about his heritage, his city, and the glory of his God. He revealed this caring attitude in four different ways. And that's what I want to look at today. And I want to begin to dive into... Uh, Nehemiah's uh, stance here. In Nehemiah 1, verse 1 through 3, we see a a few things. And I want to skip to verse 3. In verse 3, we see the the problem that is here. And he's processing the challenges that are facing him. And it says, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. And so they were in affliction and in reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also, it says, is broken down. And the gates thereof, it says they are burned with fire. And so he sees the need that is there, and he begins to process the facts that are there before him. Nehemiah is is at this point in time is a a cupbearer to the great king Artaxerxes. We know from uh, from Persia, from 464 to 423, he fulfilled that role. His name means the Lord is comforter. So he was not in Jerusalem at this point. He was 900 miles away, had a good position, was safe, was secure. He was, as we would think, we think of a cupbearer, we think of someone that uh, maybe was low on totem pole, but he was not. He had a very uh, privileged position. It was not what we would think of. It was a position of great great privilege and great responsibility. At each meal, he was to test the king's wine. And obviously, this was not a position that a king would take lightly. The king would invest in this person to make sure this person was right. It obviously spoke to Nehemiah's character and his ability. The wrong person as a cupbearer could have severe effects on the king. Amen. That would be a serious problem. 
And so it spoke volumes to who he was. The king trusted him. For nearly a century, the Jewish remnant had been back in their own land. Nehemiah could have joined them, but he chose to remain where he was. And here we see the sovereign hand of God at work. He was right where God wanted him to be. Because God had a plan he was going to fulfill through Nehemiah. He was going to use Nehemiah. In the same way, I believe God has us where he wants us today. I believe God has a purpose for each one of our lives. The Bible speaks to that very clearly. We know he has a purpose for me, he has a purpose for you. And we know that God created you and I. The Bible says in Revelation 4.11, for his pleasure. Everything we do is to do for the glory of God. And so one thing I know of my purpose and your purpose is we're here to glorify God. We're here to honor God. And we know Nehemiah in the same respect was to do that. God had Nehemiah for such a time and for a specific purpose. And I assure you the same is true for us. A routine day in Nehemiah's life quickly became anything but routine. When his brother came and met up with him and began to share what was going on, it changed his day. You ever had a day change real quick? It's amazing how fast a normal day can change. One phone call can change a lot, right? One person bumping into you can change a lot. One thing happening can change a lot. I've heard it said that like large doors that swing on small hinges, life-changing events can come at any moment. They can come at any moment. So we need to be prepared for those things and ready for those things. In Nehemiah's life, in Nehemiah 1, when his brother brought this report, it changed a lot for Nehemiah. And we'll dive into that. You think about many times in Scripture we see this. It was just another day for Moses, tending to the sheep, when God spoke to him out of a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. It was just another day for David, an ordinary day for David, caring for the sheep when he was called back and anointed to be the next king over Israel. It was an ordinary day for Peter, Andrew, James, and John when they were mending their nets after fishing failures. We've all had some fishing failures, amen. Nothing worse than striking out at the pond, right? After that, they became fishers of men. A normal day changed quickly. Inside in each and uh, each and every ordinary day, we do not know what God has in store for us. But we know he's got a plan and we know he has a purpose. I think about my journey to, to First Baptist Church. There was a lot of ordinary days that God was doing something I was unaware of for me to be where I am today. We see God works in those ways. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did Nehemiah even care? Why did he care? He was 900 miles away. He was safe. He was secure. He had a good position. He was provided for. Everything was good for Nehemiah. Everything was under control for Nehemiah. Why did he care? He was successful and secure in his own life. In other words, as many people might say, that's not my problem. That's not my problem. My life and my situation are just fine. But the question we must ask ourselves as we look around this broken world, we should not step back and say, is that my problem? It is. It is our problem. God's never called us to be inactive. He's called us to go. We're called to go and to reach. We're called to be not just simply situated good in life. As I believe if you're here this morning, you're, you're in a good church, amen? You're surrounded by good people. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, your eternity is secure. And amen, that's good. There's no better promise than know of your eternity and you're, you're secure in that. And you know Christ. And you know the minute you take your last breath, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's a good thing. But God never called us just to be saved and then sit comfortably. He called us to go. We think about Jesus' journey. He never sat comfortably. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men and humbled himself to the death of the cross. And so we see Jesus himself didn't sit comfortably. He was aggressively going and seeking and searching and working and serving. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't Nehemiah's fault the nation was in the situation. Nehemiah wasn't accountable, so to speak, for the situation of the nation of, 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 of Jerusalem there. 
But honestly, aren't they just getting what they deserve, he could say. Aren't they just getting what they deserved? I mean, a long time ago, Jeremiah, the prophet, said this was going to unfold. Jeremiah 15, 5, he says this, For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? So it was told of old this was going to unfold, but yet Nehemiah was burdened for his people. He was burdened for his people. He didn't just want to sit idly by. Nehemiah was the man of God chosen to do the very things that Jeremiah spoke about in Jeremiah 15, 5. He was going to be the one who was going to bemoan, the one who was going to have pity, the one who was going to go and search and seek them out. Some people prefer not to know what's going on because with information and knowledge comes responsibility. With information and knowledge comes responsibility. I've heard the old adage, but I don't think it's true. What you don't know can't hurt you. I found that to not be the case. When we bought our second home, we uh, we just sold it, actually. We bought a little log cabin about five years ago in the woods. And Beautiful little cabin. I love it. It's a perfect little setting for me to, to get away. It's quiet. It's peaceful. A good place to hunt out back. It's got a pond in the neighbor's place. The deer cross. It's like taking candy from a baby to get a deer. So easy. Beautiful little place, right? We bought it five years ago, and we had the inspection done just like everybody else does and had the house checked out, and the inspector signed off, and a few little things here and there, but everything was good. But the, the old adage that what you don't know can't hurt you, that's not true. It can hurt you because there are some things missed on that inspection. We got into that house and it wasn't long. I see my water bills going crazy and I see some water issues in the corner of the basement. I'm like, what's this all about? And we do some research and there was a water leak. Then I want to have my chimney cleaned out to get ready to burn for the winter because I want to heat that thing with wood and the chimney gets swept. Oh, by the way, your chimney liner's busted. Now I got to drop a $3,000 insert in the chimney. So what you don't know can hurt you, right? It can hurt you. The information is good. So we need to know. We, We don't need to turn a blind eye to some of these things. What we don't know can indeed hurt us. We need to be knowledgeable of these things. When we truly care about someone, we want the facts, no matter how difficult they may be. If we have a compassion for something or someone, we want to know what's going on. I remember when my second daughter, Allie Jo, was in the hospital when she was born. She had some, uh, some heart issues, and she had to undergo open-heart surgery at five days old. And I remember the doctors making their rounds every morning. We spent 30 days in the hospital. I remember the doctors making the rounds, and I wanted to know the facts. When you care about someone, you want to know. Every time that doctor came in, I'm asking questions. What's going on? What's the stats? What's the, what's the heart rate, the rhythm? What's, give me all the details, the O2 levels. I, I want to know everything. When we care, we want to know. Nehemiah had a heart that cared for his people. And he didn't just turn a blind eye. He wanted to know. He wanted to gather information. He didn't want to just uh, close his eyes off to it. Facts and truth do not cease to exist simply because we choose to ignore them. So you think about us today, our world is in need. We can turn a blind eye to it, but it's still in need. And we're accountable as a church to go. Some have not the knowledge of God, and he counts this to our shame. The words Nehemiah heard were difficult to hear. Remnant, great affliction, or ruin, reproach, broken, burned down. These words, I'm sure, were difficult. He knew it was in ruins earlier, but he thought possibly it was repaired. But yet we see he gets the truth of the matter when it comes to Jerusalem. And so here he is. He's now burdened with the truth. We see here what that leads him to do. The first question we must ask ourselves is, do we care as Nehemiah cares? When we see a world in need, does it burden us as it did him? Are we like Nehemiah, anxious to know the truth, even about the worst of situations? Is it our interest born of concern or idle curiosity? Does the reality of our world today, the brokenness around us, the families that are following, the kids that are suffering, the consequences, the schools that are impacted, does does it burden us? I had a young man or a gentleman sharing with me this morning about a tragic situation in a family. And in 
in the midst of a broken heart and tears, he's sharing with me about something that's going on in a family. Our world's hurting. Our world is in need. It is a, is a burden to carry some of these things. And yet, we have the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. Do we really want to know these things? With knowledge brings responsibility. And so we see what Nehemiah does with the information he has. In verse 4, we see a transition here as he begins to prepare. And I want to challenge us this morning to begin to prepare. As we look ahead to 2020 as a church, as we look ahead to what God can do, is going to do at First Baptist Church, I want us to prepare. And look what it says in verse 4. It says, It came to pass when I heard these words, Nehemiah says, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The weeping of Nehemiah was not a weakness. This is not a man who's weak. This is not a man who's, who's soft. He's weeping for his people. God is getting a hold of his heart. God is getting a hold of his heart for his people. A heart that is moved with compassion when presented a difficult truth will be moved to weep oftentimes. We look into the scriptures and we see this happen. Many a strong man in the Bible wept. We know that Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was proclaiming the word. He was trying to turn Israel back to, to the Lord. And he was known as the weeping prophet. Paul in Acts 20 verse 19 it says, With many tears he ministered. We know that Jesus himself in Luke 19 41, he wept over Jerusalem. And so we see that weeping is not a sign of weakness. Nehemiah here is broken for the, his people. He looks out and he, he hears the story of his people. He hears the story of Jerusalem and he's moved with compassion for the people. He's, he says he sits down, he's mourning, he's, he's fasting, he's weeping, he's praying before the God of heaven. His heart is being prepared for what God's going to have for him. That, that pre- preparation is taking place in the heart of Nehemiah. A heart must be prepared before it'll move. Before the feet move, the heart has to move. The, the heart is what leads our feet. And we see that with Nehemiah. His heart is being burdened for the people and it's going to lead to his feet moving. Nehemiah was like the Lord in that he willingly shared the burden that was crushing others. Psalm 69, 9 says, For the zeal of thy house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He was bearing the burden of his people. When God places a burden on our hearts, we should not try to escape it. We may miss out on the blessings that follow. Think about Nehemiah for a moment with these things that were unfolding. If he would have ignored these, he would have missed the blessing that lied ahead. He would have missed what was in the future. He would have missed the joy that we'll see at the end of Nehemiah. He rejoicing. He would have missed that great joy. We know Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For his anger endureth but, for, but a moment, and his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. So even though we're burdened, it's okay. There could be joy lying ahead. Don't try and get out from underneath the burden of that affliction. God, what are you doing in the midst of this? And show me what I need to do in the midst of this. And joy comes in the morning. Nehemiah didn't run from the burden. He prepared himself for the burden. He prepared himself. Like Daniel, Nehemiah probably had a private room where he prayed to God with his face toward Jerusalem. Fasting was required once a year. But Nehemiah was fasting for days, weeping and praying. He knew that somebody had to do something to rescue Jerusalem. And he was willing to go. He was willing to step up and to go and to be that person. The emotions, concern, and care Nehemiah had for Jerusalem prepared him for what lie ahead. And so we see his preparation. We see his preparation. Then I want to show you his prayer. I want to show you his prayer. In verse 5, it moves on. It says this. And, and, uh, it says, And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, 
that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thy ear now be attentive, thy eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. I want you to think about the wording in these verses. He says, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house. He says in verse 7, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest, thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word thou commandest, thy servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. And so you see the prayer. We see the prayer that's unfolding here. This is the first of, of 12 prayers recorded in the book of Nehemiah. He opens and he closes in prayer, which is a good idea. We see it's obvious that Nehemiah was a man of faith. He depended wholly upon the Lord to help him accomplish the work he called him to. Alan Redpath uh, said this in a quote. He says, there is too much working before men and too little waiting before God. I'll repeat, there is too much working before men and too little waiting before God. Nehemiah's prayer begins with a scripture to praise to God. In verse 5, he says, Go God of heaven. It's a title Cyrus used for the Lord when he announced that the Jews could not return to their land. So we see that he begins with prayer. I want to challenge us as a church to pray. We're going to get more specific on this towards the end of the sermon. But we need to prepare our hearts. We look around, our world is broken. Our world is in need. Nehemiah saw his people hurting and broken and in need. And he prepared his heart. He weeped. He fasted. He prayed. And that prayer led to action. And I want to challenge us this morning with that very thought to be praying for our city, be praying for our communities, be praying for our family members, be praying for those who don't know the Lord, be praying for the, uh, the city and the county of Ashland, be praying for Mansfield and surrounding areas, be praying for those that live next door to us, our neighbors, our workplaces, be praying for those folks. We pray to a God, the God who is worthy of all praise. What better way to begin our praise than with praise to him for who he is? He is a great and terrible or awesome God. Remember when we pray who it is we are speaking to. You know, if you're experiencing, as we see in Nehemiah in verse 3, great affliction. He was burdened. He's about to undertake a great work. Then you need great power. If you're going to underdo great work and underdo something great, you need great power. You need great goodness. And you need, in this situation, the great mercy of a great God. We think about the challenge of our world today, and we look out and say, it's so broken, it's so gone. Is it even possible to correct it? Is there even a solution? Is there any way, anything we can do? It is a big problem. But my friends, we serve a great big God. We serve a God who's capable of changing these things. We serve a God who is capable of saving souls and doing a great work in our city and in our county and beyond. The God we worship is greater than any challenge, fear, task, or obstacle you and I may face. He's bigger than all of these things. He is able to do above, exceedingly above, all we could ever think or ask. He is capable of doing all these things. Our huge problems, our big problems to an almighty holy God are small. Everything we see in life that's so big and so daunting and so challenging to God is not. He's beyond it. He's greater than it. He's bigger than it. He's more powerful than our challenges. And so we see here, Nehemiah looks... He sees Jerusalem in ruins. He sees the, the gates are burned up. The, the walls are broken down. He's burdened by this. And he goes to a great big God in prayer. And he knows that God is capable of doing a work. He knows that God is capable of fixing the problems that they're facing. He also is a God who keeps his word. Aren't you thankful God keeps his word? I know I am. And in verse 5, he says this. It says, And I said, Beseech the O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible or awesome God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him. 
I'm thankful God keeps his word. I'm thankful when God says something, you can take it to the bank. I'm thankful that God says, whosoever shall call upon my name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I'm thankful that they can do that. I'm thankful that God's capable of doing that, is able to do that. And when he says it, he keeps his word. God is not a man that he can lie. He says it, and it's true. The Lord made a covenant with Israel, promising to bless them as long as they obeyed. We see that in Deuteronomy. With obedience brings blessings. With disobedience brings cursings. But he warned them he would chase them if they disobeyed. So we know God does keep his word. What God says, he means. He's not like the parent who says no seven times and finally gives the kid the candy bar. Right? He's a parent who says it and it's done. It's final. It's the standard. We know what God says. The greatest part of Nehemiah's prayer was confession of sin. I want you to wrap your mind around this for just a moment. Nehemiah was not there. He's 900 miles away. He's a cupbearer to the king. And he says in verse 6, he says, I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. He lumps himself into this prayer. He lumps himself into the confession of sin. He lumps himself into the concern for his people. He doesn't say they did this, they did this, they did this. He says we. He pulls himself into this. We know that his, his prayer is a prayer for forgiveness of sin for his people, but also for him. And my friend, I want to challenge us with something. We need to be dealing with our sin too. As a believer, we're called to confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Our world in need has sin needs to be dealt with. We have sin needs to be dealt with. The reality is this. We're forgiven, but we're not perfect. We're not perfect people. And we need to be dealing with sin just as our, our world needs to be dealing with sin. We need to be for asking for forgiveness of sin. We know that God will forgive sin. He promised us to forgive sin. He says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We know that as we turn to God, he will forgive. I'm thankful that in October 2005, as a lost person, I turned to Christ and he forgave me my sins. I'm thankful that today if I get on my knees and I pray and, and confess my sins, he forgives them. I'm thankful that he forgives them, removes them as far as east is from the west. I'm thankful we have a God that can forgive sin. Nehemiah uses the word we and not they, identifying himself with this generation that uh, was clearly in sin. It would have been easy to blame them, but yet he lumped himself in. We have sinned. Verse 7, he says, we have dealt very corruptly. He lumps himself in. I want to remind you of a story out of uh, Scripture. It says, one Jewish soldier, Achan, sinned at Jericho. God said the children of Israel committed a trespass, and that Israel sinned and transgressed the covenant. Since the sin of one man brought sin to an entire nation, it brought shame and defeat to the whole nation. And once that one sin had been dealt with, God could again bless his people with victory. You think about sin and its significance and it's important. We know sin came in by one man and one man, or, or by one man sin entered in and sin passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We see here that Nehemiah lumps himself in and says, we have sinned. We have dealt treacherously with you. We have fallen short. I and my father's house, he lumps himself in. We know God will forgive sin that is confessed and we need to be doing that as well. So we see a humble prayer of Nehemiah closed with an expression of confidence. Look with me at verse 10 and verse 11. Verse 10 says, Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by the great power and by thy strong hand. Verse 11, we see, O Lord, I beseech thee, 
Let now thy ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee thy servants this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah had confidence in the power of God. My friend, have you ever prayed and been surprised when God answers your prayer? It's happened to me a time or two. You pray and you're almost not expecting God to answer it. And then when he does, you're like, wow, he's a big God. He's in control. We need to pray expecting, right? We need to be praying expecting God to show up. God is in control. We have confidence in what he can do. If we pray for lost loved ones, we need to be trusting that God can indeed save those lost loved ones. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people bow before God and for a long period of time pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And someone who no one ever thought would get saved, get right and get saved. Get saved. It can happen. We need to pray and trust God to do the work. Nehemiah had confidence in the power of God. When the Bible speaks to the eyes and the ears and the hands of the Lord, it is only using human language to des- describe divine activity. God, we know, John four twenty four says, is a spirit, but he is able to see people's needs. He's able to hear their prayers and work on their behalf with his mighty hands. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that when we pray, God hears us? Aren't you thankful that he acts according to his will? I'm thankful that we have a God who hears our prayers. As we pray, he hears and he responds according to his will. Nehemiah knew that he was too weak to rebuild Jerusalem. He knew he was incapable, but he knew that God was. I want you to think about this for just a moment. I am very confident that I am not capable, nor are you, of fixing our broken world. But I am more than confident that God can. I am more than confident that God can save folks, that God can do a great work. I'm more than confident that God can do a revival in the city of Ashton and beyond. I'm confident God can do that. He's done it. And he says he can do it. I believe he can do it. But he requires us to be faithful to pray and to seek him. God is capable of these things. Nehemiah was confident in God's faithfulness to his people. Nehemiah was confident God could raise up people to help the work. He was confident in his prayer that there would be others. There would be others come alongside. He was confident in that. He says there, he says, my, he says, my servant, speaking of himself, and he says the prayer of thy servants, others that would come. He knew, he knew God would raise up other people to help. He was certain that God would respond. He was certain there would be other people praying as well and that the work would go forth and come alongside him. Nehemiah was confident as well that God would work in the heart of the king. The king who had already denied access to go back and rebuild once, he now had to go back to a second time. He was confident that God would oversee that, that a sovereign God would handle that conversation and would take care of that. And we know, if we study out the rest of Nehemiah, that God did indeed do that. Nehemiah needed the king's blessing, and he was confident God could secure that for him. Too often times we plan our projects and then ask God to bless them. And here's what I want to challenge us, church, this morning. I don't want to plan God out of the church. I want to plan God build the church. I want God to be in the center of the church, the First Baptist Church. I want God to be at the middle of it, God to be working in it, and I want us to stay right where he wants us to be, whatever that looks like. I want God to be at the center of it. I want God to direct us. I want him to guide our steps, guide our paths, take us where he wants us to go, do what he wants us to do, and then he gets the glory from it and he saves the souls. And I don't want a bit of glory from it. I want him to get all the glory of it. I want God to build the church. I want to be at the middle of it. We see Nehemiah sat down. He wept. He knelt down. He prayed. When you see that he was, he was busy about these things, he was praying. He stood up. He worked because he knew that he had the blessing of the Lord on what he was doing. I want to challenge us this morning to pray. To pray for the future of FBC. To pray for a, 
uh, our world today, to pray for the brokenness in our world today, to pray for lost people, to pray for family members, to pray for co-workers, to pray for those around us, to pray for our church family here, that we would be strong in our walk with the Lord. I want to challenge us this morning to pray because we're not capable, but God is. God is. He, he is capable of doing these works. He is capable of doing this. I heard it been said before that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but it's getting God's will done on earth. And we need to be seeking God's will within the church, in our own lives, in our families and beyond. We want his leading, his blessing, because he is the one that gives the increase. He must be at the center of everything we do. The center of the church is God. The center of the family is God. It's the only way it works. That's the only way it functions as it should. God must be the central focus of all that we do. And that begins by us hitting our knees, humbling ourselves in prayer before a holy God. And asking God to guide us through his word and through that still small spirit that he speaks to us by. So we see he prayed. And then we see he participated. Not only did he pray, but as God prepared his heart, and as his heart was broken, and he was weeping, and he was fasting, and he was praying, his heart was prepared, then he prayed before God, then it spurred him on to action. It spurred him on to do something. In verse 11, we see his response. We see he's going to be moved on to action. For God's will to be done on earth, he does use people. We don't pray and just sit around and wait on something to happen. We pray and then we seek God to guide us and to direct us and to lead us. And then we follow. And we follow God's leading. God's vehicle that he uses to reach the world is the church. The church is plan A and there is no plan B. He's only said, go. Preach the gospel to every creature. He's told the church to go in Acts 1-8, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. Over and over again, he's told the church to go. We're the vehicle which God uses. So we pray and then we follow God's leading and God gives the increase. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.20 that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. I believe oftentimes, I know I look at my life, I've seen it in my own personal life, the times where I'm not where I need to be or maybe not doing the things that God wants is when I'm lacking in prayer. If our prayer life isn't right, that's our communion. That's our communion with the Lord. That's our time with God. That's that time we, we invest in, in seeking God and not trying to convince God of what we want, but trying to align myself with God. I bow before God and God, what, in, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Lead me, guide me, direct me, put me in a path of who you want me to be with. Give me the words to speak and we align ourselves with a holy God. And in those times is when we find ourselves being more fruitful. But God can do exceedingly, exceedingly abundantly above all we think or ask. God answers prayer. He oftentimes starts by working in the one doing the praying. The one who's praying oftentimes is the one he'll do the most work in. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater. The vision of what needed to be done became clearer. Real, real prayer keeps your heart and your head in balance. So you stay in tune with the Lord and his perfect timing. So I want to challenge us, church, this week and beyond to be praying for lost souls, to be praying for First Baptist Church, be praying for the people that are in this very room today. We all need to be together in this thing, praying together, be praying for each other. I need you to be praying for me as your pastor. We need to be praying for each other, praying for lost people, praying for the church as a whole. We need to be a praying church because God is the one who does the work. As we pray, God directs. He tells us what to do, when, how, through his word and through the leading of his spirit. And we only want to be right where God wants us to be. I do not want to be outside of the will of God. I only want to be right where God wants us to be. And the closer we commune with God in prayer and in his word, we have a higher likelihood of being in his will. 
And so we need to be a church that, that ministers from our knees. We minister from the Word of God, and we seek to draw as close to God as we possibly can. And as we do so, God leads us and directs us and guides us, and He gives the increase. Nehemiah didn't pray for someone else to accomplish the task at hand. He didn't argue with God that he was ill-equipped for the job. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't argue with him. I know many times I, I reflect back to when God called me away from my previous position into, into ministry back in 2012, there was many of interesting conversations between me and God. God, you surely have the wrong guy. I remember, I remember praying many a time, saying, Lord, I don't know. I don't know if you've got the right guy or not. But God knows what he's doing. God's got it under control. And we see that with Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't pray for someone else. He didn't say he was ill-equipped. He just followed God's leading. The king's, the king's cupbearer would have to sacrifice. Think about Nehemiah here. Again, remember his position. As a cupbearer, he's got a good position. He's secure. He's safe. He's well taken care of. Jerusalem's in ruins. That's not his problem, so to speak, what we would say today, right? But think about what he did. He was willing to sacrifice the comfort and security of the palace for the rigors and dangers of a life in a ruined city. He was willing to set aside all those things that he had to go get his hands dirty in a broken down city. He was willing to give all that up. Luxury, luxury replaced with ruins. Prestige replaced with ridicule. We know the ridicule that he would face and the, and, the, and, the, and the persecution that would come against him throughout this journey. But he gave all that up to go and to do as God directed him to do. We know that Jesus himself, though he was rich, became poor. So that we were poor might become rich. Sometimes it requires us to get our hands dirty. Sometimes it requires us to go in places where we may have to give up some luxuries of life or some, some things in life that we may not want to give up. But sometimes it requires us to do so. And with the help of God, he did it. We know in 52 days, the wall was rebuilt, the gates were restored, and shortly thereafter, the people were rejoicing. But it all began with a man who cared. It all went back to a man who cared. He cared for the Lord's work. He, he didn't do it for a reward. I want you to think about Nehemiah for a minute in this respect. When he left all that he knew to go back and do that work, he didn't do it for a reward. He didn't do it to be seen of men. He didn't do it to be seen of anyone else or to get a, to get a paycheck. or to do. He did it simply to glorify and honor his God. You think about what it looks like to serve God. A servant of God is one who says, I don't want a bit of glory. I want God to get to glory. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Here am I. Send me. And that's what Nehemiah was. That's where he was. He didn't care who got the, the, the glory from it. He says, I'll just go. He didn't do it to be noticed. He didn't do it to get recognition. He simply wanted to glorify God, and he was concerned for his people. He had a concern for the people of Jerusalem. We don't participate to be seen of men. We participate that men may see God. We serve that people may come to know the Lord. We don't participate for our own, uh, for people to see us. Think about Abraham cared and rescued Lot from Sodom. Moses cared and delivered the Israelites from Egypt. David cared and brought the nation and the kingdom back to the Lord. Esther cared and risked her life to save the nation from genocide. Paul cared and took the gospel all throughout Rome amidst a bunch of persecution. Jesus cared enough to die on an old rugged cross to save you and I, right? You think about putting aside some things and having a compassion for others. God is still searching for people who care enough to process, prepare, pray, and participate to get the Lord's work done. The question is, will we go? You think about today and how this translates for you and I. We understand the situation that our world is in. We get it. You watch the news, you, open, you turn on the TV, you open up a paper, if people still read papers today, anybody still read papers today? They're almost a thing of the past, right? But you open up a paper, you turn on the news, whatever it is, maybe it's on your phone these days. Our world's a mess. It really is. 
But we know the solution. The solution is Christ. Our world is floundering. Our kids are struggling. Families are struggling. We see it all around us. The facts are what they are. The need is great. The need is great. And just as Nehemiah heard of a great need, he responded. Heaven is still amazing. Hell is still bad. Hell is still hot. And Jesus is still the only way to heaven. The question is, what will we do with information that we have? Will we process that information? Will we prepare our hearts? Will we pray? And will we participate in going and reaching the world? The facts are that every single person who knows not the Lord Jesus Christ in a real and personal way will die and will spend eternity in hell. That is a reality. That is a reality. And we must accept that. How does that affect us? The church was never called to sit idly by. We're called to go. We're called to reach the world. We're called to be moved with compassion. And I want to take you one more place as we kind of begin to to bring this to a head. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, I want to show you the heartbeat of our Lord. We see this in Matthew 9, 36. As he looked looked out upon the multitudes, it says in Matthew 9, 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. He didn't pray for them to come. He prayed for laborers to go. He's praying for people to go. God looked out and he had compassion upon the, the, the world. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion for them. And it led him to action and he prayed that people would go. When we see a world in need, the question is, will we go? We must go as Nehemiah saw a need and he prayed and he prepared his heart and he went. So the question is, will you pray? I want to challenge you this morning to pray. Will you commit to praying daily for the mission field we live in? Do you realize you think about missions? Missions is a lot of things. Missions is globally, absolutely. Missions is also right next door. Missions is a workplace. Missions is your neighbor. In some cases, missions is our very own families. Many of us have family members who don't know Christ. I have family members who don't know Christ. That's my mission field as well. Some of us may have kids who do not know Christ. That's your mission field as well. And so your mission field is everywhere. It's anyone around us. Will you commit to praying for the mission field here, globally? Will you commit to pray for that? Will you commit to praying daily for First Baptist Church and the folks who are in this room? Will you commit to praying for the church? Will you commit to praying for me as your pastor? Will you commit to praying daily for lost people and that God would win them? Will you pray? We must be a church that is prepared and a church that is praying. We see that here. My prayer is that as you pray, God would burden us to participate, get involved. Many already are. Continue to get involved and continue to serve and to see God's glory magnified. We'll see many ways and we'll unpack these things as we get through the month of January. The month of January will begin to unpack what that looks like and what that's going to look like. We'll look at the mission that we're called to. We'll look at the truth of God's word. We'll look at fellowship and prayers and, and on. So I want to just ask FBC to pray. To prepare and to pray. A world that is broken needs a church that is prepared and praying. And I want to challenge you all this morning with a very simple thought. Nehemiah heard the news. He processed it. And it broke him. It broke his heart. He wept. He fasted. And he prayed. And it moved him to action. And I want to challenge us as a church. We've been, you guys have been serving for 69 years. Praise the Lord. 69 years the church has been in place. All I want to see is God glorified. I want to see more people reach for the gospel. I want to see lives transformed by the gospel. I want to see people getting reached with the gospel. That's my heartbeat. 
That's where I am. I want to see people saved, baptized, discipled, and the church to grow. And so I want to ask you to pray. To look around, see a world in need, prepare our hearts, and pray. I want to challenge us to be a church that prays that God would do a great work. Because I want to remind you that I and you can't do it. God is the one who builds his church. He is the one who does it. And so we need to do as Nehemiah did. We need to hit our knees and be in prayer that God would get to glory and that God would build his church. Pray that God would shape and mold us into what he would have us to be. Put us where he wants us to be. Do as we would have us to do. So I want to encourage you and challenge you this morning to be a church that's prepared and a church that's praying. I'm excited to get into the coming month with you and begin to unpack some of these things as we get through the month of January. I have no doubt that God can do something amazing. God will do something amazing. He's been doing amazing things here at FBC over the last 69 years. Every one of you have been impacted and many more. Countless souls impacted by the ministry. And I'm excited to see what the future holds as well. What can God do over the next several years here at FBC? My prayer is we see in Acts 17, 6, the disciples, if you think about in the book of Acts, as they began the work, right? It started off with the disciples and then the church grew the day of Pentecost and it grew from there. And in Acts 17, 6, it says, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. That small group turned the world upside down. It takes a few people sold out for the cause of Christ to do a tremendous work for God's glory. So I want to challenge us, the church, this morning to process where our world is today. Chew on it. Let it sink deep within our hearts. Prepare our hearts for that. Spend some time in prayer. Pray for each one in this room. Pray for those that don't know Christ. Pray for the, the future of the church. Pray for all of these things. And then as a church, as a, as a group, may we just seek to do and go as God would lead us as God would direct us. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you've never given your life to Christ, you're here and you're not certain of your salvation, my friend, you need to realize first and foremost that we all need to be saved. I realized in October 2005, as I stood and talked to an assistant pastor in my driveway, he began to present the gospel to me. He made it so clear for me to understand that every one of us are sinners and we all need a Savior. It was a very clear picture. And I realized as I stood there before that assistant pastor, I was lost in my sins. I understood it. The Bible makes it clear that we all are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. My friend, every person that walks this planet has fallen short of God's glory. Not a one of us are perfect. Every one of us have fallen short. And he tells us there, the wages of our sin is death. The thing I earn because of my sin is death and separation from God. Every one of us deserve it. None of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve it. It's called grace. It's called mercy. But he told us that he died for our sins. And that if we will come to him and turn from our sins and turn to Christ, he will save us. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, I want to challenge you this morning. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first step to what you've heard of today is to personally get right with God. If you're not saved, you're not where you need to be with God. He's going to look and He's going to see you in your sin. But the good news is this. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I stand before God now, and he doesn't see all my sin anymore because of Christ. Not because of me, not by any works of righteousness I've done, but by what Christ did on the cross. And so if you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ for salvation, you've never had your sins forgiven, my friend, here in just a moment, we're going to have an invitation time. There'll be some men and some women up here that can share the gospel with you. And the Bible says today can be the day of your salvation. Today, you can get that settled. Today, you can know that you'll be in heaven. You can get that dealt with today. If you guys are staying with me and bow your heads and close your eyes in prayer.